Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson, and what a week. Images of tent encampments on the U.S.-Mexico border, children being taken from their mothers and fathers, and then this audio from ProPublica. Well, just left me speechless. As their cries rang out, the nation took note. Politicians spoke up. We stand here doing nothing. As innocent, little babies sit in modern-day camps. That's not right, it's not fair, and it's not just. Activists took to the streets. There's only one word that goes through my mind. It's shame. Shame on them. But the administration was defiant. If you are smuggling a child, then we will prosecute you. And that child may be separated from you. Parents who entered illegally are, by definition, criminals. And they could be murderers, thieves. Well, ladies and gentlemen, at this moment, this is America. This is us. This is what we are doing. Until under the weight of public outcry, the president changed course. And by the way, today I signed an executive order. We're going to keep families together, but the border is going to be just as tough as it's been. President Trump may have signed an order ending family separation at the border, but many families remain apart and many questions unanswered. Where were the children taken? How are they doing? And what will it look like to detain parents and kids together as President Trump plans to do? We start with our immigration reporter, Auda Bagato, who's in New Orleans. Auda, good to talk to you. Hey, Al. It's really good to hear your voice. Okay, so why are you in New Orleans and not sitting next to me at work? I'm here in New Orleans spending time with a family that that lives here. They're a Garifuna family from Honduras. And for people who aren't familiar with what that means, they're indigenous black people from Honduras. The mom's name is Maribel Bernardes, and we're not using her son's real name. For this story, we're going to call him Jose. And why aren't we using his real name? Well, he's dealt with some pretty significant trauma since he's been in the U.S. For one, he was separated from his mom for a really long time. And how, how old is he? Jose is 10. He just turned 10 in February. Tell me about Jose. What, what is he like? Jose is really silly. He kept grabbing my microphone and, and whistling, trying to make me laugh. <laughs> and he's very attentive. He tried to help me with my backpack. He wanted to make sure I had enough water to drink, that I wasn't thirsty. And he likes to make like these little jokes. And he's just, he's really sweet. And he's just a really nice kid. So he's clearly been reunited with his mom. Were they separated at the border? Well, not exactly. Jose came here with his cousin seeking asylum, and he wanted to be reunited with his mom, who was already here in the U.S. And he was detained at the border, and he was eventually put into the care of a temporary shelter, like the ones that we've heard so much about recently. And he had his own bed, and he really describes that place mostly as a positive experience. But then because of certain behaviors, like saying he wanted to leave and trying to run away, he was evaluated by a psychiatrist. 
And then ORR, which is the Office of Refugee Resettlement, sent him to a place called the Shiloh Treatment Center. So where's his mom in all of this? His mom is right here in New Orleans, and she had been desperately trying to reunite with him for months. I've looked through hundreds of pages of records that Maribel has kept from the time that he was there, begging, just begging with the staff to please allow him to be released to her care. She's saying, I am his mother. Please give me back my son. So she's trying to connect with him, and he's stuck in this treatment center. Tell me about this place. Shiloh is officially designated a residential treatment center. They have a contract with the federal government to care for unaccompanied minors. Like the kids that we're hearing about who are now being separated from their parents. Potentially, yeah. They could be the kinds of kids that end up at Shiloh. This place is right outside Houston. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's a tiny town called Manville. Okay. Esta es la segunda foto que tengo. When I met with the family, I brought with me some printed out Google street map images of properties that we knew to be associated with Shiloh. And I wanted to see if Jose would talk because I knew that he'd been through a lot. By that time, he had already told me that he was physically hit by one of the staffers there. He told me that this happened very often. He also told me that All of the other staffers saw it happened, and nobody ever intervened in any way to help him. And so I wasn't sure if he would really talk to me much about what he'd been through, but I found the exact opposite. He really did want to talk, and he wanted to tell me about the place. He wanted to tell me about what he experienced. So here we hear Jose saying, that's the place, that's where I was. That school? It's a trailer. That hospital? It's a trailer. It's just a trailer that doesn't have wheels on it. And here's what his mom, Maribel, told me about her impressions of the place. She finally got to see it for herself when she went to pick him up in April. It's out in the woods where they have them. It's a horrible place. It's not a place suitable for minors. It's not a building where a child should be. I imagined it a better place where my child would have therapy, a place to play, to get over his trauma. But in those woods, he became more traumatized. While I was spending time at their house this week, Maribel told me that she wanted to share something with me that she kept in the kitchen cabinet. And so she tells Jose, go over there and get the medications. And so Jose runs and he gets this giant plastic bag full of pill bottles. This bag is literally overflowing. It's full of medications. This one is also from the psychiatrist. This is another one, also from the psychiatrist. They gave him all these drugs at the center where they had him. Jose was medicated the entire time that he was at Shiloh, nearly six months. They never had his mother's permission. Why has he been given all this medicine in the first place without her consent? I mean, is he sick? Jose was nine when he got to the U.S. He had never taken any medication like this in his entire life. But he told me that at Shiloh, he was given it all the time and that it made him feel really slow. And from everything that I know from my reporting on this, this is what happens to immigrant children at Shiloh. They stand in line and they take their medications every morning and every night. And that description comes from Jose. He he stood up when we were talking and he made his hands like a line. And he said there were these little sippy cups and the children would come and just take their medicine one by one, morning and night. And his mother, Maribel, did not okay this. No, she was absolutely against this. I, I asked her that question, too. Did you authorize any of this medication? Yes, 
Nunca autoricé, es más. I never authorized it. In fact, when I found out he was so sleepy, like hypnotized, inarticulate, I called and I asked his staff person if they could take away that medication. And she told me, no, no one can take away that medication because it has been prescribed by the doctor and that my child needed it. And I ask her, can I not, as the mother, decide for my child not to be giving all the medication? And she said that no one could discontinue the medication, only the doctor. She said it just like that. Ahora, Jose said other immigrant kids at Shiloh were also being drugged. Do we have any documentation to prove that? What Jose described to me is pretty well documented by some legal filings that we dug up. They were just filed in April, and they describe some of the broader allegations from other Shiloh families. Uh, kids describe being held down and injected against their will. They're told that they're receiving vitamins. They're told that they won't be released unless they accept this medication. Uh, the side effects are rampant. Kids say that they've had freakish weight gain. Uh, they come in at a normal weight and they put on 50, maybe 60 pounds over the span of just a few months. And others say they can't even walk because of the dizziness that they experience from the medication that they're put on. Uh, one young girl said that she fell and she ended ended up in a wheelchair because she was so drugged that she simply couldn't walk. Wow. As uh, as a parent, I just uh, I just really don't know what to say here. Um, how is Jose now? You know, Al, I want to let you know that the forced drugging is just part of this story. Like I mentioned, Jose was physically hit there. That's what he told us. And he'll probably be dealing with that part alone for a really long time. We've also found that one child died at Shiloh. This place has a contract with the U.S. government. Does the government know that all of this is happening? Yes. The problems at Shiloh have been widely reported in Texas. It's so bad that the local DA complained to the federal government to try to get them to monitor Shiloh more closely. And this was years ago, Al. And it's not just Shiloh. In nearly every national case reviewed by Reveal and the Texas Tribune, we found that federal officials continued contracting for years with these companies to continue to operate shelters for undocumented children, even following really serious incidents and citations by state officials. Because this is a government-contracted place, that means it's being paid with public money. So how much are taxpayers spending on places like Shiloh? It's a pretty penny. The federal government started funding Shiloh in 2013. Since then, it's paid the company more than $25 million. Shiloh has a contract through the year 2020. So what's going to happen to Jose and Maribel now? Maribel is so happy to be reunited with her son, and Jose told me the same thing. He's just really happy to be with his mom. Meanwhile, they both have pending asylum cases. And as some of our listeners may know, Attorney General Jeff Sessions just very recently made it a lot harder for people who are fleeing domestic violence and gang violence to be granted asylum. And that's specifically what their cases go to. So we don't really know what's next for them. Arubagaro, thank you so much. Thanks, Al. Aura reached out to Shiloh for this story, but they wouldn't talk to her. And one more thing. The amount of money to pay for places like Shiloh across the country is staggering. Taxpayers have paid more than $1.5 billion in the past four years to private companies operating immigrant youth shelters that have been accused of serious lapses in care. That includes neglect, sexual, and physical abuse. You can read Outer's reporting in our full investigation on our website at revealnews.org. Not all children separated from their parents are put in shelters and treatment centers like Jose. Some of them are being taken in by foster parents, many of them under four years old, and like any toddler, they get sick and need to see a doctor. 
So I wound up seeing three kids who were brought in by their foster families. They came in really for very mild childhood illnesses, vomiting, dehydration, rashes, colds, those kinds of things. That's Tara Newbrand, a pediatric ER doctor in Denver. She says it's not unusual to see foster kids in the hospital. Most of them don't have regular pediatricians. But it wasn't long before she noticed something deeper going on. She learned from the foster mothers that these toddlers had been taken by immigration officials from their biological parents. Yeah, so in all these cases, when I was trying to examine the kid, I put my hands on their back, rubbed their back. No hay nada, no voy a hacer nada, todo está bien. And, you know, oftentimes the kids will turn around and look at me and smile or relax a little bit. That just wasn't happening. They just didn't have any interest in anything I said to them in whatever language it was. They were sitting in their foster mother's laps, all of them. They had their chests on their foster mother's chests, and they had their arms just wrapped so tightly around their foster mother's necks that they just could not be separated from those women. It was so striking, it was so different, that I asked these families if this was normal, if this was different behavior, if they were doing this at home, you know, what was going on. And in all three cases, they absolutely could not be put down by their foster mothers. They had to be held all the time in physical contact all the time. And that's not normal. Can you describe them individually for me? The first one I saw was a little boy between one and two. His foster mother told me that he was from Guatemala He was a tiny little thing, (laughs) you know, with brown hair, just a really sweet-looking kid. He's just one I remember really well because when I was asking the foster mom what was going on and if he was acting this way at home, she got really teary-eyed talking to me, and she just kept repeating over and over, I'm just trying not to ruin his life. I'm just trying not to ruin his life. I mean, this kid would yell out, Papa, 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 all the time. And she couldn't, she couldn't help him. She didn't, she didn't know where his Papa was. She didn't know if this kid had any siblings or if he would be reunited with his father or when he would see him again or when he might communicate with him. She, she didn't know anything. So how did they communicate? None of the foster family spoke Spanish. Um, That was hard on them as well, uh, because they were trying to comfort the kids and just weren't really able to do so. Just to be clear, we're talking about toddlers that have been taken from their parents and they're being placed in homes with foster families that don't speak the same language as they do? Right. That is correct, yes. The the foster mothers that I interacted with did not speak Spanish. I remember the first one I saw when she was hugging the little boy. She'd hug him and say, mijo, mijo, because she knew that that's an affectionate term in Spanish. But that's pretty much it. I mean, she, she couldn't communicate in any kind of reliable way in Spanish. What about the other two? Yeah, so the third kid that I saw... Um, was a little girl from Guatemala. She was really withdrawn. And when I asked her foster mom if she was acting like this at home, she asked me if I had any suggestions about how she could bathe her. This little girl would scream and cry every time this mom tried to put her down. And so she couldn't put her down even in the bathtub. She told me that If it was her biologic child, she would just get in the bathtub with the kid. But as a foster mother, that's not something that she's allowed to do. So this this child had gone through so much trauma and was so upset and so shocked that basic hygiene issues were things that just weren't able to be reliably taken care of for her, even with someone who was really trying to do so. Were you able to help them at all um, as far as their mental and emotional state? Not really. 
I mean, I, not really. I was pretty useless. Um, it was pretty awful. I, there was really nothing I could do to help these kids. I mean, I could treat their vomiting, I could treat their rash, right? But that wasn't their problem. What was their problem? Their problem was that they missed their parents and that they weren't with their parents. As hard as seeing that is, do you think that those children are actually the lucky ones because they're with a foster family opposed to being in these detention centers? I think the argument is they're the lucky ones. And and I get that argument, um, but it just isn't enough. You know, it's not enough to take care of the body of a kid without taking care of their heart and their brain. Dr. Newbrand, thank you so much for talking to us. I appreciate you guys getting the story out. Tara Newbrand is an emergency room pediatrician in Denver, Colorado. As of now, the administration does not have plans to reunite kids with their parents. But for new families crossing the border, it wants to keep them together, possibly for a long time. So what might that look like? Good afternoon. Buenas tardes. When we come back, we meet a little boy from Honduras who knows firsthand. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, the long-standing problem of discriminatory policing against religious and racial minorities in France. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. This hour, we've been talking about families at the U.S. border who are seeking asylum. Border agents were separating kids from their parents. That was until President Trump reversed course just a few days ago. He signed an executive order to stop this from happening and called for kids and parents to be detained together, potentially for long periods of time. We know something about what that would look like because under President Obama, some children and parents were held for a really long time. On our show last year, we brought you the story of Lorena and her son Carlos. Now, we're not using their real names because Lorena's afraid immigration authorities will punish her for speaking about her time in detention. We're re-airing this story because it shows what the kind of long-term detention Trump is proposing is actually like for families. Lorena and Carlos were in a detention center when they appeared before an immigration judge in York, Pennsylvania, last August. All right, we're on the record. The court's audio recording is a little crackly. Good afternoon. Buenas tardes. On the right side of the courtroom, a large flat-screen TV shows Lorena and Carlos sitting at a small white table. They're video conferenced in from a federal immigrant detention facility about an hour's drive from where the judge sits. Carlos is four years old. His front teeth are missing, and he's got deep dimples. His head barely reaches the top of the chair. Judge Kumas Golpavar compliments Carlos on dressing up and slicking down his hair. You're looking good. I like the suit you're wearing. The judge will decide whether to release Lorraine and her son. The family's lawyer, Bridget Cambria, tells the court that she's requested their release many times, but ICE always pushes back. We are completely at the behest of ICE, and they have refused to release him for 650 days for no particular reason. That's 650 days, nearly half of Carlos's life. ICE's attorney, John Staples, argues that because they were caught near the border, they have fewer rights. Carlos barely pays attention. 
head down, he scribbles on a piece of paper until the judge interrupts him. Were you coloring? Lorena and Carlos are hoping this judge will free them. We're going to tell you what happened in the court that day. Reporter Laura Benchoff of WHYY in Philadelphia was there. She's been following this family to try and understand why the U.S. keeps coming back to family detention and what it does to kids. Here's Laura. When I first talked with Carlos's mother, Lorena, back in March 2017, ICE had detained them for about a year and a half at the Burks Family Residential Center, 70 miles northwest of Philadelphia. ICE doesn't let me record inside, so we talk on the phone with an interpreter's help. Lorena says visitors may not see barbed wire fences or bars on the windows, but it feels like a prison because they're always being watched. And as a mother, she feels powerless. There are some days, a lot of days, when my kid tells me, Mom, let's leave. Let's get out of here. I don't want to be here. When he asks me, when can we leave? I don't have an answer because I don't know when. The place, all beige and linoleum, used to be a nursing home. Inside, the days melt together. Wake up, then breakfast in the cafeteria, usually processed stuff. For the kids, there's school in the classroom wing during the spring and fall. The center pays the adult detainees a dollar a day to do manual work, like cleaning the common rooms. At night, guards check the bedrooms every 15 minutes, shining their flashlights over the families. As many as three families share each bedroom. To lift their spirits, Lorena and the other women created a ritual, 10 a.m. prayer service in the detention center's small chapel. I'm evangelical, and I think that if I didn't look for God, like I do every day here, it would be hard to go on. Lorena started leading the daily worship service after ICE deported the woman who used to do it. In some ways, Lorena's path from Honduras to the United States was typical. She and Carlos fled after a gang threatened them. They started to break in and take my stuff. The truth is that sometimes, simply by being a single mother, you become an easy target for them. They requested asylum. The first part of that process is an interview. The month Lorena and Carlos arrived, nearly 80% of people got through that test and continued to the next stage. This is where their story gets way less typical. Lorena says the officers who assessed her claim were openly skeptical. They told me, don't make up stories, because they don't believe. They don't believe what's happening in our country. The asylum officer denied Lorena's claim on the first go-round. In most cases, that would have meant deportation to Honduras. In their case, the American Civil Liberties Union stepped in. It saw what happened as part of a disturbing trend, the federal government rejecting valid asylum claims and decided to fight it. On behalf of Lorena, Carlos, and about 30 other mothers and children, the ACLU sued the federal government to try to get a second look at their asylum claims. That was in 2015. Carlos, barely three when he and his mother arrived, turned four years old inside the Burks Family Residential Center. Detention for immigrant kids like Carlos is supposed to be limited. It isn't supposed to drag on and on. That's because of a big class action settlement from the mid-1990s, where the government agreed to treat detained kids humanely and to keep their detentions short. During the Obama administration, ICE tried to get around that agreement. It began holding kids by themselves and kids with their parents much longer than before. As family detentions in Pennsylvania stretched into weeks, then months, then more than a year, local advocacy groups started protesting outside the center. U.S. senators wrote letters urging the Department of Homeland Security to release the families. Global human rights organizations condemned the U.S. over family detention. One reason for all this criticism? There's evidence that living in detention is, by itself, bad for children. 
Psychotherapist Kathy Miller is one of several who visits the Burke Center to evaluate detainees when their lawyers request it. She's met with a half dozen kids there. One seven-year-old's symptoms have really stuck with her. Anytime any kind of trauma discussion happened, he would um, run laps around the tiny table we sat at and then jump up and slap the wall really loudly. You know, that right there, it's so common for kids. This kind of distraction is a classic sign of post-traumatic stress disorder in kids, Kathy says. And this boy's mother said that over and over, he wrapped a lanyard around his neck like a noose and said he wanted to kill himself. Kathy drew out that he was terrified of returning to El Salvador, where gangs had targeted his father, and he'd seen the bodies of family friends they'd killed. By Kathy's second visit, he'd been there for a year and a half. She says he'd gotten worse, not better. There's a direct correlation between the length of time that a child is in detention and um, worsening symptoms. ICE deported that boy and his mother last May. As for Carlos, he cries a lot. He hides under the bed when kids he's gotten close to are released or deported. An outside psychologist has never evaluated him. But Lorena did see one, who diagnosed her with depression. In that evaluation, Lorena admitted she sometimes thinks about killing herself. Since 2005, at least eight people in ICE detention have committed suicide. Over the phone, Lorena tells me she's feeling anxious. I'm stressed. I have gained a lot of weight. I can't sleep at night. There's an in-house psychologist at Burke's. Lorena says she doesn't trust him. That distrust carries over to other problems. In court documents, the women in the Burke Center complained the staff and nurses routinely downplayed their medical concerns, like the parasite and painful cavities that bothered Carlos. Lorena says he suffered for a while before getting treatment. I think four months, three to four months. He'd have pain for a few days, then it would stop, then it would come back. Officials with ICE wouldn't talk to me for this story, but they did write responses to some of my questions. In a statement, an agency spokesman said comprehensive medical care is provided from the moment the families arrive throughout their entire stay at the center. Immigration lawyers and other advocates brought detainees' complaints to a Berks County commissioner's meeting in 2016. Speaking of medical... Issues. Um, During the public comment period, attorney Carol Ann Donahoe recited a list of problems. We have the distinction at Burks of having the only rape conviction uh, of the three family detention centers. Burks County wants to keep the center open. ICE pays the county to run it day to day. In return, the region gets more than 60 jobs, and the county government pulls in an extra million dollars a year in revenue. County Commissioner Kevin Barnhart told the audience the detainees' complaints don't tell the whole story. These folks are given medical care, dental care, psychological care. We have been inspected more than any facility in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in the last two years. This meeting ended abruptly when the commissioners and the lawyers began shouting at each other. You're not pro bono. You're pro bono. Yes, we are. Beyond Berks County, ICE is one of the agencies responsible for dealing with families and unaccompanied kids who show up at the border. Detention is part of its strategy. It works. It was made as a deterrent. Joe Salemi's retired from ICE. He supervised the Burke Center when it first opened more than a decade ago. He says officials want people in detention to tell relatives back home how hard it is to get into this country. You'd hope they get on the phone and say, don't, you know, call Honduras. They're they're putting people in jail now. Matt O'Brien, a former attorney for ICE, offers another reason for family detention. It keeps people in one location while the federal government weighs their asylum claims. If ICE has to go looking for people, it drastically reduces the number of people that it's able to remove from the U.S. in a timely fashion. These days, Matt works for FAIR, the Federation of American Immigration Reform. 
they lobby to restrict all immigration to the U.S. Some of FAIR's leaders have been tied to white supremacists. When President Trump took office, he appointed FAIR's executive director to a top post in U.S. Customs and Border Protection. The Trump administration wants immigrant detention. But after years of court battles, in 2017, federal judges ruled that ICE can't detain kids for longer than 20 days. And if ICE wouldn't free them, they could go before an immigration judge to plead their case. This is what Lorena and Carlos had waited for. And it's what landed them in that court hearing we heard at the beginning of the story. All right, so I'll ask again. Both parties submit for a decision? The government does, yes. During detention, Carlos had received a special visa just for kids that creates a path for him to stay in the country. But there's no guarantee his mom can stay. After he sifted through all the legal arguments, the judge invited Carlos to chime in. I want to go with my mom. All right. So my ruling is as follows. I do find that this court has jurisdiction over custody proceedings involving this minor. Um, I find that the respondent should be released on his own recognizance. The judge released them both. The court is going to release the mother to accompany the respondent. Lorena grabbed for a tissue. Thank you, judge. Thank you, judge. You're very welcome. Thank you, judge. Thank you, judge. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. They left the Burke Center that same day. That night, they celebrated with pizza and carne asada at a Mexican restaurant. A couple of months after their release, I visited Lorena and Carlos where they were staying in Indianapolis. They share a two-story house with a family they knew from Honduras. The family supports them while Lorena waits for the government's permission to work. She shows me their new room in the basement, joking, it's too messy for pictures. No camera. No camera. No. There's a mound of cartoon character blankets on the bed, a small refrigerator, and some dirty laundry cascading from a hamper. Most importantly, though, she says, there's privacy. Nobody else comes there. Carlos hovers close to his mom, playing a game on a tablet or burrowing under the blankets and squealing. They share the same good humor, but also the lingering effects of detention. When I first left the detention center, I was still very confused. It was hard to put everything in order in my mind. Lorena lifts the leg of her pink jeans to reveal a black plastic ankle monitor. I feel good here, I really do. But I am always being watched. That keeps her from feeling truly free. Carlos acts like a goofball sometimes, but his mood swings are intense. I, I think it has to do with the detention. Before, he cried a lot. Now it's changed into anger. That's not all they have to contend with. Lorena's immigration status is in limbo. She doesn't have a good case for legal residence in this country. And since their release, ICE has appealed to a higher court, arguing that they should be detained again. It makes me angry. We were locked up for 22 months, and they're still fighting for us not to be free. ICE is still fighting to rearrest Lorena and Carlos. That story from WHYY's Laura Benchoff with Reveal producer Laura Starcheski. Since it first aired on our show last fall, Lorena has gotten her work permit. Today, the Burke Center still holds families, but has been keeping them for shorter periods. If the Trump administration gets its way, that will likely change. What about families who want to ask for asylum in the U.S. now? Well, many of them are stuck at the border, waiting for customs and border protection to let them through. They've told us that it's full inside and they can't accept us. That story next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. 
From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. We end this hour about people trying to cross into the U.S. at the border itself. Matamoros, Mexico is a border town. It's just across from Brownsville, Texas. Between those two cities, those two worlds really, there's a bridge about a quarter of a mile long crossing the Rio Grande. Thousands of people cross this bridge every day to work, to visit family and friends on one side or the other. It's casual, routine. But for many others, this bridge is the last hurdle in a perilous journey. It separates people from persecution on one side and the promise of a new life on the other. Nina Satija from our partners at the Texas Tribune spent the last few days crossing back and forth. She met people who were hoping to claim asylum in the U.S., but they're stuck on the bridge. Nina takes the story from here. One way to seek asylum in the United States is to come to a port of entry. It could be an airport, or it could be a bridge, like this one. To cross into the U.S. on foot, you stick to the right, following the sidewalk until you get to one of those old-fashioned turnstiles. Even for pedestrians, it's a toll bridge. It's just a quarter or a handful of pesos to get through. And now you're on the bridge, crossing a covered walkway toward the U.S. Through a chain-link fence to the right is the Rio Grande, muddy and brown. To the left, four lanes of traffic. And ahead, on the other side of the bridge, is this little building, the processing station in Brownsville. That's your way in. All you have to do is walk across. Except, this week, three agents from Customs and Border Protection are posted smack in the middle of the bridge. They're standing behind a podium with a simple sign taped to the front, black ink on white paper, a phrase in Spanish that translates to, prepare your documents for inspection. If you don't have documents and you want to ask for asylum, you have to wait. Marcos Samayoa is one of about 15 people camping out here. Well, I'm here asking for asylum. I've been here for two days. Some of the other people, they've, they've been here longer. Over the past week, reports like this have been surfacing all along the Texas-Mexico border. The situation leaves people like Marcos in a tricky spot. He can wait outside in the elements for who knows how long. Or he can give up and go back. They've told us that it's full inside and they can't accept us. Marcos is from Guatemala. He has shaggy dark hair. He's wearing jeans and a gray T-shirt. He's 22, but the bags under his big brown eyes make him look much older. When I meet Marcos, President Trump's family separation policy is still in effect. And his wife and four children are caught in the fray. They separated them. She's in one place and my kids are in another. That's all he knows. As soon as they could pull together enough money for the trip, the family traveled to the U.S. ahead of him to claim asylum. Marcos tells me he had a small business selling a dish called ceviche in Guatemala. But gangs threatened to harm his family. He says they tried to extort money that he couldn't pay and that asylum was his family's best option. No, no, no. Uh, the, the truth is, uh, I don't regret it. If I would have stayed there, they would have killed one of my children or they would have killed me. Over and over again, Marcos circles back to a list of unknowns. He doesn't know why he can't cross the bridge. He doesn't know where his wife is, where his kids are. And he doesn't have a phone to find any of that out. So I offer him one. His fingers are shaky as he types in the numbers. Hello, Don Carlos. Hello, Don Carlos. Yeah, they gave me this call. These reporters. Just, just let you know that I'm here at the bridge. And, and that I'm, I'm staying here because they're not letting me in. That's it. And, and that I'm good. I'm good. Do you know anything about Sandy? Sandy's his wife. A few moments after he asks that, his face relaxes. Marcos tells us there's good news. From what he understands, Sandy has been granted asylum. 
by now, the sun is beating down, and it's humid. Marcos's gray T-shirt is stuck to his skin. People crossing the border are dropping off food and water. After spending a few hours on the bridge, I tell Marcos goodbye. Then I show my American passport to the Customs and Border Protection agent, who tells me I can go through an express line into the U.S. It all feels strangely easy. On my way out, it starts raining. And then it starts pouring. Later that night, I get a call I don't expect. Hola, como esta? Me, me llamo Nina. It's from Hilda Aldana, Marcos's mother-in-law. She saved the number that Marcos called from earlier. Hilda says there's been a miscommunication about Marcos's wife. She's not clear on the details, but her understanding is that the government did not accept the asylum application. Marcos's wife will have to appeal the decision. Meanwhile, she's stuck at an immigration detention center in Port Isabel, Texas. And Hilda tells me Marcos's children are at a shelter two states away in Arizona. Hilda says her daughter Sandy has never been separated from her kids, that it's destroying her. And that Sandy has a message for Marcos. That message from Marcos's wife, don't turn yourself in at the bridge. Turn back. We've come to this place only to suffer. But it's raining too hard and there are tornado warnings. I can't go to the bridge now. I tell Hilda I'll try to pass along the message in the morning. The next day, I make my way toward the halfway point of the bridge. Oh my God, Marcos is still there. You see him, he's still there. There was thunder and lightning most of the night, sideways rain and flooding. I really didn't think Marcos would still be here. He's still wearing the same gray t-shirt, jeans. Hola, Marcos. Todavía está aquí. ¿Cómo está? I take a deep breath and tell Marcos about the call from his mother-in-law. La realidad es que la noche pasada, su suegra nos... I hand him a cell phone so he can call her. Hello. Hello, Mama Hildo. There's a long pause. Then he clicks his tongue. Marcos's eyes fill with tears. His face gets a little red. I assume he now knows what I know that his wife has not gotten asylum. When Marcos hangs up, I ask him what he's going to do. He's still going to try. He says he has no other options. It's not fair, he says. I've been waiting here for so many days. After a few minutes, Marcos isn't even sure anymore. If the U.S. is going to deport his family anyway, maybe he will return to Guatemala. I wish him the best of luck, walk towards the Customs and Border Protection agents, and show them my passport. Thank you. And I'm on the U.S. side of the bridge, and I'll, uh, we'll leave Marcos behind. 
That story was from Nina Satija at the Texas Tribune. It was produced by Fernanda Camarena and Juan Luis Garcia contributed reporting. The next morning, Marcos wasn't on the bridge. We don't know if he was allowed to cross over or if he turned back. In fact, the only people there? Customs and Border Protection agents, still standing at the halfway point. Marcos and the children we talked to this hour are seeking asylum from Central America, places like Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. They're fleeing gang violence, drug lords, and political unrest. Now, some people ask, why should their problems become our problems? Why should we be responsible for their safety? I'd like to argue that helping others is a principle this country is supposed to stand for. Give me your tired, your poor, etc. But maybe that's going too far for some people. Okay. But then there's this. The U.S. has never had a problem crossing their borders and meddling with their affairs. And to some degree, it played a hand in the chaos these asylum seekers are trying to escape. In El Salvador, we propped up a brutal regime. In Guatemala, we overthrew a democratically elected government to help American corporations. And that pattern extended across the region. These people are living in the aftermath of U.S. policy from decades ago. History has a gravity that we can't escape. And these asylum seekers are forced to live with it. And so are we. This week's show was produced by Laura Starcheski, Anayansi Diaz-Cortez, Fernanda Camarena, Emily Harris, and Catherine Miskowski with help from Phoebe Petrovic. Taki Telenidis and Brett Myers edited the show. Special thanks to ProPublica for its use of audio of Families at the Border. To Youth Radio, Elizabeth Perez Luna, Emily Curitan, and to WHYY in Philadelphia and WWNO in New Orleans for production help. Thanks also to Reveal, Ziva Brandstetter, Andy Donahue, Matt Smith, and Patrick Michaels. Our production managers, Mwende and Aosa. Our sound design team is the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. They had help from Kat Shuknit. Our acting CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell's our editor-in-chief. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story.